One of the things that the Apostle John wanted to be sure you knew before he told you that Jesus rose from the dead is that Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead as a doornail. Jesus was so dead on the cross that when they went to break his legs to hasten his death, as they'd done to the two thieves, they arrived at him and they said, he's, he's dead as a doornail. There's no sense breaking his legs. They took him down off the cross. And two people, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy businessman and probably a Pharisee, and Nicodemus, who is always referred to throughout the Gospel of John as the one who came to Jesus by night. It's a way of saying, Joseph, the scaredy cat. Joseph, the one who was a secret disciple. Which is exactly what's said about Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, I'm sorry, I got that mixed up. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, excuse me. And Joseph came to take the body of Jesus. It says that Joseph was a disciple by secret because he was afraid. And it says every time about Nicodemus, he was the one who came to see Jesus at night. But these two come together at the end, along with 75 pounds of spices. That's a lot of spices. That's like three big sacks of planting soil. And they came with these three big sacks, and then they took the body of Jesus. They got permission from Pontius Pilate to take his dead, bleeding body off that cross. And then they began to wrap it, and they began to lace spices in with the wrappings that they mummified him with in the, in the tradition of the Jewish people. And they found a grave site right near the dump heap where they'd crucified him, and it was like a cave with a stone, and they put him in that in a grave that wasn't even his own because the Sabbath was approaching. And they laid it in this nearby and never used tomb. And then silence takes over. The dead Jesus, embalmed with 75 pounds of spices, laid in a borrowed tomb, lies still all day Saturday, all night Friday, all day Saturday. John wants you to know he was dead. He was as dead as dead can be. And then we read this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Darkness is a theme that John uses over and over again. When Jesus left uh, from the Last Supper, it says it was dark. He went out into the night. Or when Judas went out to betray Jesus, it says right after, and it was dark. And it's still dark, at least in the minds of the disciples. And early on that first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Ma Mary of Magdalene. This is the Mary who we are told had seven demons in her. She was a crazy woman. She would freak out at the drop of a hat. She was apparently quite wealthy. Because later, after these seven demons had been ripped out of her by the power of Jesus Christ and she'd been liberated and set free, she and other women mentioned in Luke 8 and in Mark 16 tended to all of the apostles' needs and to Jesus' needs financially. And they traveled with them from town to town. If you just had pictured Jesus traveling around with 12 men, you're not reading your Bibles. 
It says the women traveled from town to town on his great Galilean ministry. And they went all the way with him to Jerusalem. And in fact, this same Mary of Magdalene, when the men had fled, one of them with his clothes stripped off, he ran so fast he was so afraid. When the men had all fled except for John, Mary was there at the cross with Jesus' mother and a few of the other women. She stayed near him all the time. Whenever the women are listed in the Gospels, Mary's always at the first. Mary of Magdalene. Magdalene was a garrison town, a Roman garrison town, a rough and tumble town. Some have suggested that she may have been a prostitute at one point. As prostitution was uh, quite an industry in a garrison town. And that maybe that drove her into psychotic states or demon possession or a combination of both. We don't know. That's strictly conjecture. But she's always mentioned first in the list of the women disciples, just like Peter is mentioned first in the list of the men disciples. This Mary, according to the Gospel of John, in his account of these resurrection appearances of Jesus, it's Mary who comes in the dark all by herself. She's, in a sense, the female beloved disciple. She's always there. She's always hoping. She's always doing what little she could. She sees the stone is gone. She runs to get Peter. Can you see her? She runs back to wherever the disciples were hiding out. And she wakes Peter up. It's still dark. They've taken the body of our Lord. They've ta- he's rubbing his eyes. He's getting sleepy seeds out. He's, okay, Mary, yeah, whatever. Puts on his robe. By the time he gets his robe on, the beloved disciple, whom most scholars think was the Apostle John, the beloved disciple's already up. And he's running for the tomb. And Peter starts to run too. But the beloved disciple outruns him. This doggone guy always gets there first. All through the Gospel of John. He's always beating Peter. It's actually a theme in John. There's something about the beloved disciple. The one whom Jesus loved. The one who rested his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. The one who who, uh, Peter said, well, give this message to Jesus. At the Last Supper, and, and it was the beloved disciple that gave it. He's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved so much. This beloved disciple outran Peter to the tomb. And he not only outran Peter to the tomb, but something else happened. He waited at the tomb until Peter got there, huffing and puffing. Peter was also a little older. He just might not have been in as good a shape. And Peter goes in first. He sees the linen cloths that had wrapped Jesus, that Joseph had wrapped Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And he sees him lying there. And the thing that they'd wrapped around his face, he sees it very carefully folded up and set, set in, a pl- in its place, in a different place, right there. Some have conjectured that the, the mummified uh, spices and the, the, the grave clothes had stayed in the shape of Jesus. And when he rose, they, they were actually still in his shape. There are all kinds of possibilities. We don't know. But it looked quite different than if grave robbers had come in. And Peter walked out scratching his head. The the synoptic gospels say Peter walked out wondering. But listen to what the beloved disciple, what happened inside of him. He went into the tomb after Peter. He saw the exact same situation. He realized in his mind that it hadn't been grave robbers. Something unique had happened. The same exact information that Peter had. But the Bible says this. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. A little scary. 
walking inside a tomb where the last time you saw that tomb, the bloody corpse of your hero was taken. He, reached, he, he would reach the tomb first, also went inside, and he believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What was it he believed? He believed even though he didn't understand the scripture that said Jesus would rise from the dead. I don't know what he believed. He just believed in Jesus. On very limited evidence. Why is that? Peter walked out seeing the same evidence and he wasn't so convinced. He doesn't believe until later that night according to the Gospel of John. Raymond Brown says this about the beloved disciple. He says, this story has the effect of contrasting the beloved disciple with Peter, who sees the same evidence, but does not come to belief. This is not because of Peter's hardness of heart. Rather, faith is possible for the beloved disciple because he has become very sensitive to Jesus through love. He saw and he believed. This refers only to the beloved disciple. We find a close parallel in John 21, he goes on to say, when Jesus stands on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias and the beloved disciple is the first one to recognize Jesus. And it is he who informs Peter, it's the Lord. The lesson for the reader is that love for Jesus gives one the insight to detect his presence. The writer takes special interest in showing the beloved disciple's primacy of love. And the writer is simply telling us, that the disciple who was bound closest to Jesus in love was quickest to look for him and first to believe in him. So the two male apostles leave, one believing on scant evidence, the other scratching his head, and Mary's left there weeping. She's bawling her eyes out. She looks down into the tomb and says she had never gone in. She looks down in the tomb and she sees two mighty, powerful beings, angelic celestial beings and they say to her woman why are you crying they've taken my Lord away and I, I don't know where they've put him and then she turns away from the tomb turns this way and sees Jesus but doesn't recognize him something that happens often in his resurrection appearances she sees this man doesn't know it's Jesus and Jesus ironically says to her with the same greeting the angels had used woman or dear lady why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And in the most cosmic mistake maybe that's ever happened on the face of the earth, this case of mistaken identity, she takes him for the gardener. I mean, this is the resurrected Lord of the universe. It's interesting John put this in. He must. I can see he and Mary sitting around joking about this. Remember when you thought he was the gardener? Good. Really good. Sharp. Insightful. Incisive. I love it. Let's go with that. Resurrected gardener. And Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? She mistakes him for the gardener. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. Just one word. That one special word, her own name, Mary. And immediately she knew who it was. And immediately she believed. And she turned to him and she said, oh, my dear teacher, my Rabboni. My dear teacher. And then he tells her, do not hold on to me, but go instead to my brothers. Go instead to my brothers and say what you've seen. And tell them that I'm returning 
to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And so she went to the quivering, fearful male disciples and she said, I've seen the Lord. And they didn't believe her. They thought she was a little nuts. But it was a happy day for her. Written inside my file cabinet, if you go to the W's, you start with B's, that's bills to be paid. Move past that quickly, it's thick. And you get to the W's where it says will. And there's the last will and testament of Bart Tarman in there. And in there are written, handwritten instructions, this is true, that at my funeral, this is the song I want sung. Oh, happy day. Seriously. It's one of my favorite songs. Because it ties together the fact that Jesus died for our sins, but Jesus rose from the dead. And it is a happy day. A great preacher from the last century said, Someday you will read, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, Someday you will re read, Charles Spurgeon is dead. Don't believe it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I've ever been before. Because it's a happy day. What do we learn from Mary the Magdalene? We learn that she was seeking Jesus with intention that morning. She thought he would be dead. She thought she would come and just make sure the spices were working and that he'd been prepared properly. She was doing what little she could do, but she came early and she came to do what she could do and she was intentional about it. Are we? We learned that she did not control the appearance of Jesus. This is not magic. The faith in Jesus Christ as our Messiah. We can't get him to show up by saying some special little thing or by jangling little things or by turning around three times. This is not magic. Jesus appears when he wants to appear. He's in charge, not us. She doesn't recognize him. Third thing we realize. Sometimes we don't always recognize Jesus at first. Or we only see parts of him. I've been trying to stumble along behind Jesus Christ now for almost 30 years. And I feel like I've just barely touched the hem of his garment. Every time I grow a little bit, he grows larger. As C.S. Lewis puts it in the mouth of one of the children in the Narnia tale. Somehow, when you get closer to him, he's always bigger than you ever imagined. Fourth, Jesus doesn't let her languish in the emotion of the moment. She wants to hold on to him, cling to him. And he says, no, no, I've got work for you to do. Go and tell those scaredy cats, the men, they're behind locked doors somewhere in the city, that I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. We're all family now. And she was quick to perform it, is the last thing we learned. She, she was snuck up on by Jesus. She went expecting a dead corpse. And Jesus snuck up on her alive. First as a gardener, then as a teacher, and then as a risen Lord. Has he snuck up on you? Well, Jesus snuck up on some other people that, next, that, that evening. The disciples heard her story. They thought it was concocted. I mean, she did have seven demons at one time, you got to remember. They'd heard some crazy stories from Mary before she was liberated by Jesus. Maybe she'd fallen back into that, that strange state. They didn't take her too seriously, but they stayed together, interestingly. 
And they were huddled together behind locked doors for fear of the authorities. And Jesus came, we don't know how, through the doors, through the wall, materialized in the middle. We don't know for sure. But Jesus came and stood in front of them or in their midst. And he said, peace be with you. Shalom. Aleichem. Peace be with you. He didn't just mean, take it easy, relax, chill. No, he meant... I want the wholeness of God's peace to be with you. All is well. All is okay. I know you saw my body on the cross. I know you saw it stuck through with a spear. I know you thought your dreams were dashed. But no, it's all well. Shalom, malachim, peace be with you. It's all well in God's economy. And they were overjoyed, it said. Understatement of the century. And then he said, not letting them languish in the emotion of it, and we don't know who all was there, by the way. It doesn't give us a list. My guess is it was the 12 and the women followers. There were probably 20 or 25 people there. And they're overjoyed. They're freaking out. They're loving it. And he turns to them and he says, Just as the Father sent me, so I'm going to send you. And then he breathed on them. Remember in the book of Genesis, when God created man and when God created... He breathed on them and they took on life. In Ezekiel, it was the breath that, that brought about life. And in this, it's the breath of the Holy Spirit that he gives on these people in that locked door room. And he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Come back up, choir. And they received that Holy Spirit. And they turned the entire world upside down. Because it was a happy day. It was good news that Jesus was alive. And I'm going to ask Professor Hodson, when they sing this, to show us at least at one part to have all of us clap together. You can't sing Oh Happy Day over and over and not clap. Well, what do we learn from Jesus sneaking up on the disciples? We learn number one, they were together. They stayed together. Oftentimes, believers get separate. I see it happen to Westmont graduates all the time. They leave Westmont and they stay separate from other believers. They get involved in their careers, they get involved in their work, and they, they're like coals that become separated from one another and they're extinguished quickly. But you put together two or three coals together and, and just blow on them a little bit and an incredible warmth comes out. The disciples at least, though they were scared, though they'd locked the doors, though they didn't have much faith, at least they stayed together. Have you stayed together? Are you together with a few others for Jesus Christ? Or are you just a lonely coal about to go out? We learned secondly that Jesus once again comes when he wants to. They'd probably been together all day, sort of hoping against hope he'd show up. Maybe they'd, they'd prayed for him to show up. We don't know. But he just arrives on the scene, seemingly, from their point of view, a tad late. Last time he was seen in the morning, it doesn't take that long to get breakfast. And he just shows up. And he says, everything is all right. But they didn't conjure him up. And third, he confirms to them who he is, and then he gives them a commission. 
He gives them a commission by breathing out. He says, I'm going to send you into the world the same way the Father sent me. How did the Father send him? Through pain and suffering. Through humiliation. He came as a child, an unborn child in the womb of a Galilean peasant. He came through the birth canal, just like you and me, the God of the universe. He was a little boy and grew in wisdom and stature. He learned by experience. He'd been teased. He'd been hurt. He'd been bruised. And he says, that's the way I'm sending you into the world. I'm not sending you in in power. I'm not sending you in in might. I'm not sending you in with rockets going off in the, in the sky. I'm sending you in the way I did. I'm, you're to incarnate, put flesh on the love of God the way I did it. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. This is John's theological version, I believe, of, of the act of Pentecost. Well, he snuck up on one other person I want to mention this morning. You know who he is. He's the one who gives us all a little bit of hope. Thomas. Now, we know him as the doubting Thomas. But remember, it was Thomas who said, when the rest were saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get killed, Lord. It was Thomas who said, then let's go up with him and die with him. The guy had some guts. The guy had put it all out on the line for three years, apparently against his skeptical nature. And no wonder he sees the one who's supposed to bring in the kingdom of heaven bleeding to death on the cross, suffocating from the weight of his own body. And he thinks, oh, you fool. Three years wasted. Be a realist. You blew it. You gambled on this guy and he's dead. And he says to the other disciples when they say, we've seen the Lord, they tell him because he wasn't together with them when Jesus showed up the first time. He was disgusted with the whole thing, apparently. And when they finally sought him out and found him, he said, Look, I won't believe it unless I see the nail marks in his hand and thrust my finger into them and thrust my hand into his side. He was putting it in their face. He said, Don't give me this nonsense. I've already given three years of my life to this fairy tale. When I see the marks in his hand and can stick my finger in it, and when I see the, the, the wound in his side and I can thrust, stick my hand in Jesus' side, then, then I'll believe. It's a very gross thing to say. It's very gross in the Greek. It says, one week later, Thomas was with them. We don't know who exactly the them was. Thomas was with them. We know who some of them were. And the Lord did the same thing again. The doors were locked. They, they hadn't quite gotten over that part. And Jesus shows up at will. And he says, Shalom Aleichem. It's all okay. All will be well and all will be well. And all will be well. And then he turns immediately to Thomas. Can you imagine what Thomas, the brother, was feeling? He's sitting there, oh no. Jesus is going on about Shalom Aleichem and everything. And Thomas is going, big mistake. The old thrust my hand into his side. Shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Jesus turns to him, I think, with some humor and says, Oh, Thomas, see my hands? And you can see Thomas by this time. It's, it's, it's hitting him hard. The implication is, do, do you want to put your finger right in these marks right here, these holes? 
Thomas doesn't do it. He says, Thomas, he opens up his, his uh, robe, shows him this gaping wound still in his side. He says, Thomas, do you want to stick your hand in my side? Here it is. Thomas doesn't do it to his credit. And then Thomas, whom you think has really blown it, throws himself down and gives the greatest statement about who Jesus is in the entire Gospel of John. And some scholars would say this is probably where the original writer wanted the story to end. He turns and he says, my Lord and my God. He uses the name of God, Yahweh. That's who you are. You're my Lord. You're my Yahweh. The Gospel of John opened up saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here's, here's uh, Thomas falling down saying, It's true, you're the God. You are the only God, and you are my Lord. And then Jesus says an interesting thing. He says, You're blessed because you believe. But more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. More blessed are those, that's you, who have not seen the resurrected Jesus, and yet put your trust in him. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that Thomas, though skeptical, stuck around. He stayed together with the other fledgling believers, even though he wasn't one of them. But he was still there on sight. No wonder later we're told in Hebrews, don't neglect spending time with fellow believers, as is the habit of son. But meet all the more, and especially as you see the day drawing near, and stir one another up to love and to good works. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we're together. Not just having little discussions, we're supposed to be stirring one another up to love and to good works, like the beloved disciple in his life. So Thomas, though he was skeptical, stuck around. Do you? Some of you have fallen into skepticism. I wish we had more of our seniors here. But by your senior year, some of you, all four of you that are here, <laughs> some of you have fallen into skepticism. Because at a liberal arts college, we want you to think. We shake you up. We make you think about the gospel. We make you think about philosophy and life and mathematics and chemistry. We want you to wrestle. But some of you have stopped at that. And not just seniors. Some of you have stopped with the struggle. And some of you may stay there the rest of your lives. Never sure what to commit to. Skeptical. And you'll pull away from being with those who truly trust Jesus. And I want to tell you, don't do that. I want to tell you, be with the believers. Be with the folks who are further along in their faith and their trust in Jesus. And you are. And he'll sneak up on you someday. And he'll either quietly or radically surprise you with the reality of who he is. We see that Jesus showed up once again when he wanted to. It took him a week this time. And when he showed up, he turns and deals with Thomas personally. And that Thomas, at that point, makes that great statement of faith. Now, I want to ask you some questions. Is Jesus sneaking up on you? Is Jesus Christ sneaking up on you? 
We learn that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There's no question in the Gospel of John. He's so sure of it that Jesus and John says, Look, go ahead, stick your hands in my hands. They're real. Later on, when he has the miraculous catch of fish, he cooks them up and eats them. He wants them to know he's not a ghost. This is the real McCoy. He's alive in the body, though the body is a resurrected body, a different body, the kind of body we will have someday. But it's a body. He rose bodily. He was in control, not the disciples. He was not always recognizable at first. Is he to you? Are you growing in your ability to recognize him? Notice the one who recognized him first and quickest was the beloved disciple. All he had to see were the grave clothes. And he believed. He didn't even understand the resurrection, it says. Tells us that. He still just believed. Because he loved Jesus so much. Do you love Jesus? Not just do you believe he was the Messiah. Not just do you believe that he died for your sins. Do you love him? Have you leaned your head up against his breast? Have you heard his heart beat? Have you surrendered yourself to him the way Mary did? The way the beloved disciple did? Later the way Peter and the rest did? The way Thomas did? Have you surrendered yourself to him? Well, the choice is ours. Because Jesus wants to breathe on you the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants to infill you with His very Spirit, the Spirit which He and His Father share. He wants to breathe that into you. He wants to have that Spirit take control of you. He wants you to be possessed by a ghost, the Holy Ghost. And he wants the spirit which animated Jesus to love everyone he met to animate you to love everyone you meet. He wanted the spirit which animated Jesus only to live for what his father wanted to animate you so that you'll only live for what your father in heaven wants. So the choice is yours. You know, sometimes at a college, we don't give you specific times to choose. But I want to do that this morning. I want to ask you to choose, to make a choice over these next two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of this semester, maybe this morning, maybe at the the ending communion service where I'll ask only people to come to that who want to dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ. The choice is yours. You can persist in skepticism or worse, in my opinion, blandness. I think the great enemy of the gospel is not flaming skeptics. Thomas was one of those. Jesus took care of that pretty easy. C.S. Lewis was one of those. Jesus took care of that pretty easy. Flaming skeptics are pretty easy to deal with. It's the religiously bland. It's the Christian college graduates who know everything but know nothing about Jesus that he has the hardest time with. Who are so nonchalant about following Jesus. Oh, it's not that they don't believe, but there's no passion. They don't outrun Peter to the tomb. They don't fall at his feet like Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. The choice is ours. We can stay addicted to the pleasures of this world, the distractions of this world, the things that hold us, but the things that don't last. We can persist in having no drive for the truth or commitment to it. Or... We can persist by surrendering all that we are 
to all that we know of Jesus. That's it. There's no other way. When people say salvation is free, I think, well, yes and no. Number one, it wasn't free to Jesus. It cost him a lot. And number two, it's going to cost you a lot. In fact, it's going to cost you the exact same amount it cost me or anyone else who's decided to follow Jesus. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you everything. You're going to have to surrender yourself, your very self. The thing our culture teaches is really God, ourself. Sad thought. You're going to have to surrender that to Jesus Christ. When you turn in personal surrender to Jesus Christ, it leads to growth in Him. When you grow in Him, it leads to growth in His likeness. We're supposed to become like Him, folks. And when we become more like Him, we're supposed to lead a work, lead a life with a work like Christ. What's keeping you from a true surrender? Skepticism, blandness, pleasures you don't want to give up. I mean, sin is pleasurable. Who are we kidding? The Bible never says it isn't pleasurable. It just doesn't last. And the more you stick with it, the less it gives you pleasure. It's like every addiction. And you have to have more, but you get less. What would keep you from surrendering to Christ? I want to ask you to think about putting it behind you today and falling at his feet. The next two talks, which I'll have before we leave this semester, I'm going to explore two things. The enemies of a holy life and the friends of a holy life. What is it that keeps us from leading Christ-like lives? That's what a holy life is. And what is it that can help us lead those? But before those two questions make any sense, surrender, deep-rooted surrender to Jesus Christ is what's called for. Let's bring the choir up for one last time and let's all stand. You've heard the song three times now. You know some of the words. I want you to try to sing with them, clap with them. And if you decided to surrender to Jesus Christ, this is a happy day for you.